This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Nil Zacharias and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. Dr. Joel Kahn is a practicing cardiologist, a clinical professor of medicine at Wayne State University School of Medicine, and an associate professor at Oakland University Beaumont Hospital Medical Schools. He has authored five books and has made appearances on Dr. Phil and The Doctor Show. Suffice it to say, Joel is a revered professional in his field. But what sets him apart from most is his dedication to promoting plant-based eating to help prevent and improve some of the most common diet-related heart conditions we see in the U.S. Not only does Joel disseminate knowledge about the importance of incorporating more plant-based foods through his medical advice, but he also literally dishes it out at his three plant-based restaurants in Detroit and Austin, Texas. I recently had the chance to catch up with Dr. Joel Kahn to learn more about his take on what people should eat to improve their health. He breaks down why he believes environmental impact should be intrinsically factored into personal diet choice, and how partnering personal health with sustainability can actually make a massive difference for patients and the planet alike. I also get his take on current diet fads such as the ketogenic and paleo diets, and he explains which foods Americans are eating too much of and what we need to be consuming to ensure maximum health and wellness. It's not every day that you get a chance to pick the brain of a plant-based cardiologist, and I certainly walked away from this conversation with a wealth of useful and incredibly practical information. Dr. Joel Kahn, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Well, as you know, I'm not only a big fan of One Green Planet, I'm a longtime reader. I've contributed and truly uh, excited to share with your community a few thoughts on all that's green. Thank you. I know I've been trying to get this uh, scheduled for a while now, and I'm so happy we can finally find uh, 45 minutes or so. Uh, to have a productive and engaging conversation that hopefully our listeners are going to f- get a lot out of. Um, and judging by a- anything I've seen you do, I'm pretty sure they're going to get a lot out of it. So, um, you know, to tee up today's conversation, I kind of want to basically lay out facts that maybe you're very, you're probably pretty well aware of, and maybe even some of our listeners know. 
but I want to kind of underscore the the health crisis that we're facing as a country. I talk a lot about sustainability, but I also try to talk about how health and sustainability are very interconnected. Um, and today I want to get dive deeper into that. But before we do, you know, some basic facts so people, you know, wake up and pay attention <laughs> while uh, we get into this conversation. There's 131 million plus Americans that are suffering from chronic diseases right now. And 50% of the deaths in this country are due to heart disease, cancer, and stroke. 70% of Americans are obese or overweight, and 70% have hypertension. And if we continue the way we are right now, in, by the year 2050, more than 100 million Americans will be diabetic. And that's just some basic facts. If you dive deeper, things get even more scarier. So, you know, Dr. Khan, I want to start off with how is it that we can solve this public health crisis if, firstly, people are con confused about diet and what is healthy eating? And secondly, our food system, as well as our government policies, do not support healthy eating habits. At the highest level, how do you think we need to tackle this problem? I mean, exactly what you're doing, uh, truly, in terms of educating. I wish we could blast this out to, you know, 100 million people um, and raise awareness on the connection between food on the plate, food in the pantry, food in the refrigerator, food at work, and obviously health, and that's a whole different discussion, but impact on the environment, uh, science that's there, but not blasted the way some other somewhat trivial topics might be blasted, um, and getting people to be mindful and then speak up. As you say, until the day that um, subsidies, government subsidies in this country at least, change the discussion and recognize as the USDA food guidelines were planning to do, but then it got squashed by big food, talk about food and the environment, food and, you know, serious health issues. Until that happens, um, you know, we're going to keep enlightening people, but we're still going to be able to go to McDonald's and buy environmentally damaging food for a fraction of the cost of food that is actually green and planet-friendly uh, and also happens to be healthy and kind, but... Um, we we have a, we have work to go. The revolution hasn't really begun to speak up for the cleanliness of air, water, soil, and what that means to you know our generation and the next few. Yeah, and I you know one of the reasons I tee it up with that question and uh, the the highest possible issue is because I, about a few months ago I think I saw watched you um, be part of this this debate or talk at Google. Uh, talking about um, healthy eating. There was Dave Asprey from Bulletproof, uh, as we all know, who proposes, um, who kind of uh, is an advocate for a high-fat diet, uh, including animal protein. Kip Anderson, who's made the documentaries Cowspiracy and What the Health. And you were the third person on the panel. And, you know, I'm not just saying this because you're on this episode, but you were the voice of reason on that panel, uh, on that during that debate, and I felt like you were able to put forth some really balanced points of view that people need to really hear instead of getting caught up in the extreme ends of each argument. So, uh, in your opinion, what is it that you know? Starting with people, if you had to start educating people who are confused about what the right way to eat is, um, and maybe some of them listen to Dave Asprey and some of them listen to Kip and end up probably more confused than ever because they both seem so different and opposite from each other. 
What do you think everyone everyone can agree on in this movement, good food movement, really? Yeah, and um, you know what we need to do is get people with loud and large platforms like Dave Asprey, like the Food Babe, like Chris Kresser and Mark Sisson, uh, pretty well known yeah. medical and paleo bloggers that have big audiences, and we ought to all sit down and say we're always going to say that the, the biggest enemy we all have to deal with is educating the public about the harm of processed food, fast food, sugar-sweetened beverages. I mean, we have so much in common, and we have such a big mission. And all that food also, in general, has a very strong environmental impact. Uh, and nobody should ever speak about a diet recommendation without also mentioning the word environment. It just has to happen hand-in-hand. Hand. Actually, one of the best and doing this lately is Dr. David Katz at Yale, very proficient uh, blogger, book writer, scientist, um, entrepreneur. And, uh, you know, he, he has raised that awareness in his very large following, particularly on LinkedIn in his writing. But every one of us at every opportunity has to say, you know, a, a health plan includes the health of the planet. So, I mean, I just got through last night watching Natalie Portman's new documentary. It's not just hers, it's other people. Uh, called Eating Animals, which is largely an examination of CAFO, you know, uh, poultry and meat production, dairy production, and its impact on the environment. You know, one brown planet would be your impression <laughs> after watching uh, that well-done documentary. But it doesn't bash on all farmers and all meat producers. It actually is quite complimentary of some of the uh, exceptional efforts being made to return to environmentally friendly, responsible, and nutritious animal production. I choose not to eat that way. I would, for a heart patient, educate them on the science. But in terms of trying to move the needle in this country, uh, I viewed it as a very positive, wonderful thing. So, yeah, we got to stop the war. We actually almost have to, like, take health, put it aside, uh, except for let's all agree on processed food, sugar-sweetened beverages, excess calories, Let's get hospitals, schools, workplaces aligned and provide people food that gets back to the um, subsidies uh, and such because it does make that mission challenging to do it cost-effective. You could do it at a medium price point, but it's hard to do it at the price that competes with big fast food chains. But we should always embrace, and I see all kinds of styles of diets being described. Of course, right now the ketogenic diet, even in all carnivore diets, is hot in discussion on uh, <laughs> social media like Twitter. And, you know, but not once is it said, but my decision to eat an all-meat diet, which seems to allow me to row my, um, my uh, Concept 2 rower at amazing speeds, also triples my carbon, you know, my greenhouse gas, my carbon footprint. That language isn't there, and it's irresponsible. So, you know, what you're doing, this conversation... Um, and almost always having that question, and what does that do for the environment? I mean, this isn't guessing. We have, like, an amazing article released just June 1, 2018 in the magazine Science mm -hmm. by Ho Oxford University, and, I mean, their quote was, veganism is, quote, the single biggest way to reduce our environmental impact on the planet, end of quote. You know, we're talking Oxford University research at a, a very high level, indicating meat and dairy, you know, avoidance could reduce our carbon footprint by 75%. Well, every time somebody presents a diet, that has to be parsed into the conversation because the numbers are 
really, really amazing the impact of getting a majority of your calories from beans and legumes and grains and vegetables versus uh, beef, shellfish, lamb, uh, poultry, dairy. Uh, it's it's you know it's almost 40 times more utilization of energy and destruction of the planet to choose to eat a beef burger than a bean burger. And you know um, I, I praise any company that takes the lead, any you know uh, medical or nutrition expert, and says you know this is this is it's not isolated. It's not a tree hugging conversation. It's it's really the conversation. I mean, who wants to be healthy and live in a world where you can't go out on a boat because the water's toxic or some such example? Yeah, you know, you bring you bring up so much over there. I, um, you know, before I dive into what I think are the synergies between health and uh, sustainability and why we can't really separate the two, um, I do want to, you know, pause a little bit and and focus a bit on why is it that um, I don't like to call them the other camp because that makes me seem like I'm on one side. Uh, I like to listen to all sides, and so I've uh, and I've said this before previously on in, in podcast episodes that I've, especially in the last year or two, spent a lot of time um, reading books, listening to podcasts from people who believe in the paleo diet and the ketogenic diet, and and I have actually learned a lot from them, um, not necessarily about uh, what to put on my plate. Um, well, maybe sometimes because they are. There's a lot that they say that is is what we all agree on, which is you need to cut down on processed foods and especially sugars and excess um, uh, processed oils. All that's great advice, and they actually most of them are saying eat a lot of vegetables. Uh, at least the intellectually honest ones amongst them. But another thing I notice is they are very focused on personal health, and and you know you're unique in that sense because. You know, you're a medical doctor, obviously, but uh, and you could easily just talk about health, and that would be good enough um, for you to promote that. You know, eating mostly plants is the right thing to do. But they come at it from a purely health standpoint, and they say, well, animal protein is important uh, to round off your diet as long as you get it from, uh, you know, not from the factory farming system, and you buy grass-fed uh, because that is more sustainable. So, hey, we are also addressing the sustainability problem. They also are healthier for you. Uh, and that ends up sending the wrong message that, you know, you could be healthy and you could be doing good for the planet by merely eating mostly plants and then adding a bit of um, of grass-fed beef. Why? I guess my question to you is, should we even bother addressing that or just... That's sound advice if someone can afford it and uh, and they are willing to at least make plant-based foods to be 80-90% of their diet, then we shouldn't even waste our time attacking the grass-fed beef. We can argue about the the facts around sustainability and how soil and, and, and greenhouse gas emissions isn't the only thing and, and you have to think about water and land and other factors. But my point being... Should we even focus on the grass-fed folks or just, you know, let them do their thing and, and let's all come together and try to attack the real problem, which is, fact, uh, you know, CAFOs or factory right. farming? Yeah, you know, I think the two quick answers. One, it's always appropriate to be scientifically and intellectually honest to say um, how much actual data is there that our key health problems uh, in the United States of obesity, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, brain disease, cancer, uh, would actually be lessened or reversed with grass-fed beef. I mean, I don't mind people saying that might be a better nutrition source and may well be 
uh, a kinder method of raising animals until the day they're slaughtered. But I don't think you can overhype it because we do need more research. The the data about omega-3 and grass-fed and others is really quite minor data. And it isn't, uh, you know, there was just a study in the past two weeks that was being popped around Twitter by um, ketogenic paleo people that a it was a randomized study for four weeks, 40 people, the Mediterranean diet quite low in red meat, which is the typical Mediterranean diet, or the Mediterranean diet with about double that amount of meat. And the only outcome, four weeks, was cholesterol levels. They were barely different. Uh, actually, the LDL cholesterol was a little lower on the extra red meat. Uh, it's almost so small and so short, it's almost random, whatever. Uh, but then you look at the funding, and everybody on the author list was funded by beef, dairy, and um, poultry industry, you know, and nobody, the intellectual honest way would, we shouldn't really have an axe to grind. We should have science and responsible communication. And nobody in the Twitter sphere was mentioning, you know, that it was so obvious that there is a place you go look in a scientific article and doesn't mean the science is without merit, but it is also a point to consider. Um, the other is I have no problem with people promoting grass fed beef, free range chickens, uh, cruelty-free farming. I mean, there's there's so much vagueness in those terms, so it does leave room as to how authentic. But as long as they're coupling it with the honest statement, 98% of humanity, maybe on the planet, at least in the Western world, is still eating CAFO meat. Mm-hmm. And we're going to aggressively, I give like Frank Lipman, MDA, New York-based functional medicine doc, because quite a few podcast interviews, you know, he'll point out, he'll say, it's horrible. CAFO's so horrible. I mean, he doesn't paint it black and white, and he brings it up spontaneously. And, you know, if if uh, my peers in the grass-fed beef clean food movement would join hands with all of us and bring tremendous pressure on Tyson and Purdue and the other uh, CAFO giants, um, you know, the public's getting aware, but they need to be even more aware. I, I was commenting uh, to my family today that it, after watching Natalie Portman eating animals last night and realizing you're at a restaurant, you're eating a burger. You have no idea where was the cow raised, by who, under what conditions, to what slaughterhouse, to what transport, to what prep factory, to what chemicals, what hormones, what antibiotics. You have no idea. You're not allowed to. It's illegal. You can't take pictures. I had a, and I hate to be humorous, huh. but I was uh, sitting on the uh, the loo and my butt whites, I happened to look, said, what factory, what city, what date, what time, what production line, Package those butt whites. And I think this is preposterous that somebody actually felt they needed all that detail on a, you know, uh, a pack of that, and you can't find out where your chicken came from and at least be confident as you put it in your body. So, yeah, the systems wonk, hmm. and uh, we all should join in these common, important messages and have millions of tweets a day calling for elimination in hospitals, schools, workplaces of sugar-sweetened beverages, processed foods, processed red meat that the World Health Organization has shown is proven to cause colorectal cancer. And the data has only gotten stronger since October 2015 when they made that rather surprising announcement backed by 800 publications. Um, there's more data. Breast cancer and processed red meat now is a stronger association than it was when they announced colorectal cancer. So, yeah, I mean, we should join hands and not fight on every issue, which is what I tried to do at Googleplex. <laughs> which is we were given the mission, this isn't the doctor's show. We're not looking for six minutes of soundbite. Mm-hmm. We've got 40,000 employees that need to know what to do in the grocery store tomorrow. Don't confuse them. Come up with some common 
ground that they can make decisions on, which is always fill your plate predominantly. It's really so simple. The yeah. USDA got it with the food plate in 2011, Harvard School of Public Health. Half your plate is fruit and vegetables, quarter of your plate is legumes and whole grains, and a quarter of your plate you can call protein. You can make it organic tofu, beans, grains. You can make it tempeh, seitan. You can make it, if you choose grass-fed beef, organic, free, you know, free-range chicken, if that's your preference. That would be such a move forward to just have a unifying uh, idea. But when, when we have people that want to fill 100% of your plate with meat and not talk about one green planet, um, and maybe one bowel moment a week to go with your <laughs> plate full of meat. I just, you know, you got to react and not let that nonsense yeah. go on. Um, and so I speak up and talk out, not to be divisive, but try and have a public that's so completely confused as it is, not get further confused. Yeah, I know. It's just, um, you know, I, I, I've even, you know, it's just a quick note on the on the carnivore diet. I've, uh, I, I don't remember the guy's name, but I heard him on Sean, the... Sean Baker, orthopedic <laughs> surgeon. Yeah. So I'm giving a lecture tomorrow uh, called Why Everything Sean Baker MD Says is Right. I'm giving it to a large vegan crowd in Cleveland. Obviously very tongue-in-cheek, going through the science of why, you know, it's completely wrong in yeah. terms of science. Now, maybe uh, there's, been a, there's been an interesting concept introduced, and I'll be very quick. Dr. Walter Longo, L-O-N-G-O, Ph.D. at University of Southern California, maybe the world's leading nutrition scientist, biochemist, on a, on a molecular level, but also on a clinical level, has this thing he calls the five pillars. Mm -hmm. When a new diet of longevity, when a new idea about what to do to live a long, healthy life comes up, you got to analyze the biochemistry, the clinical data, the epidemiology, the what happens in centenarian villages. It does it at all comport with what people actually live a long life do. And then, like, big picture, which includes the environment. Is it reasonable for the environment? When you look at the carnivore diet, it, you know, he calls that a half a pillar. He calls the ketogenic diet half a pillar. He calls the paleo half a pillar. We don't really have any of that support that you should have. But when he goes through his version of Mediterranean vegan, which is like almost all uh, vegan with a little bit of fish, you know, and you go through biochemistry and all the rest, the five pillars of longevity research. So the carnivore diet lacks, you know, any support other than testimonial, which is why it gets half a pillar. <laughs> no, I love uh, Walter Longo's uh, book uh, as well, and I think you know he has a, done a lot of interesting research on uh, on fasting and uh, uh, his fasting mimicking diet. So I think and what what was interesting about him though is he doesn't you know for most people who scream uh, vegan bias, he doesn't come from the plant based camp necessarily. Um, and what I like about what he does is kind of the point I think we all need to spend more time focusing on is that if that uh, you, most of your diet predominantly at least 80-90% of your calories should come from whole plant-based foods, um, kind of like the John Mackey approach in that sense, but the remaining 20 or 10%. You know, you're you can do whatever you want. You can try processed plant uh, vegan foods. You can, uh, if you want to, take the risk and throw in animal protein. And if you want to do better at that, obviously, uh, choose stuff that. And if you can afford it, choose stuff that doesn't come from uh, factory farms. But 
you know, a quick point on the carnivore diet. I, I heard that whole episode he did with Joe Rogan, and it was just it was just excruciating and, and hilarious at the same time, um, because he I think came out and said something like he hadn't um, he hadn't done a blood test and how um, you know getting your lipid profile was not uh, useful, and uh, which goes against. Uh, he, did. he actually he subsequently has published his blood work. Okay, and he's pre-diabetic. His hemoglobin A1C. <laughs> is 6.3, which actually is associated with a shortened lifespan. So yeah. buyer, be, buyer beware, caveat emptor. <laughs> uh, yeah, not yeah. where I'd want to be with my hemoglobin A1C. I agree. And, you know, okay, we don't need to, like, uh, at the end of the day, that's just, I, I think he's just, it'll it'll fade away. Um, it's just attention-grabbing. But what's more important is that, um, and this is kind of going back to that that debate that you did at at Google or that that panel that you were on. Um, was it was interesting? It's almost like you can look at that that one hour and it's a case study in how the two sides are sort of saying the same thing but are not actually listening to the other side. There was at one point Dave Asprey talking about uh, why you know monoculture soy is terrible and corn is terrible. Uh, and then blaming the vegans for it because we eat all the soy, apparently, which, again, is just an intellectually dishonest statement. Um, and at the same time, I think, you know, you have to be fair. On the vegan side, we have to be careful that we aren't just, uh, you know, painting everyone as supporting the the destructive factory, factory farming system because then it gives uh, others a cr- easy out by saying, hey, no, I've got a better way to farm animals, and uh, that's actually much better than the the processed monoculture crap that you vegans are eating. So then, you know, we both end up arguing about things that we actually should agree on that, okay, we can all agree that the processed crap is bad, that that um, monoculture farming is terrible for the planet, factory farming is horrible. All right, so what are we left with? We're left with whole food plant-based predominantly on your plate, and the rest of it, you can kind of decide what you want to do with it. And I think that's get, you know, if, I don't know if that's the takeaway people got watching that video, but it, uh, you know, once again, I think you were the only one who brought it out that that's the focus that can solve the problems we're facing, not arguing about the small things that we either are not listening to the other side or just misunderstand. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to kind of bring up one more thing that did come up in that discussion, and I hear you say a lot, and you have mentioned that today as well, is that... Um, you know, why we can't talk about personal health without talking about the environment. And usually that seems like um, a huge leap for some people to make because when they think of personal health, they're thinking, I need to lose a few pounds, I need to get healthy, I'm, uh, you know, I have high cholesterol, I'm pre-diabetic or something, I need to fix what's wrong in me. So I just want whatever the right solution is that's going to heal me, especially when you're facing a real problem, right? If you're having skin issues or gut issues, or if you actually, you know, have heart problem, you need rescue at that moment. And you just want to do the right thing for you. You have, and when someone then throws in the fact that you need to think about the environment, uh, I don't think that most people would react pretty kindly because that's the last thing on their mind. But I think here's where we get things wrong is that we think of the environment as being this uh, we need uh, to save the forests and the oceans and the, um, and the trees, which it is about. But we don't contextualize that in the, in the larger scheme of things, right? We're in the year 2018 right now. We've uh, basically in the last 200 years had 
uh, a huge growth in uh, our population. Uh, we are now 7.5 billion people on the planet. We've also seen the surge in industrialization in the last 200 years, which has brought us to the point where we farm animals the way we do because it is the most efficient way to feed so many people if this is the diet that they want. So if they do want to eat meat, dairy, and eggs, then factory farming is the most efficient system we have right now. The drawback of that system is that it is sucking up all our natural resources and is leading us down the path that in 30 years, we are going to be in a place where we've depleted most of our fertile soil, we're running out of land. Uh, Climate change has basically decimated uh, our oceans, as so as and so as overfishing and toxins that we dump into it, and plastic. Uh, our rainforests are pretty much de- destroyed, which is our you know our, our defenses against climate change, much like the ocean. And we are you know what that leads up to. If you connect the dots, okay, if that does happen, what happens next? Essentially, we end up in a place where we have ten billion people on the planet, and we're not able to grow enough food to feed them because we're relying on this system that worked when we were maybe 6 billion people on the planet, but now definitely doesn't work with that population literally doubled in, in, in 30 or 40 years. So the end conclusion you end up with in 2050 in America and the rest of the world is that we're going to have food shortages. We're going to have, uh, you know, of course, also the devastation of climate change to add to it. And that's going to and then not even getting into all the pollution and toxicity and the uh, superbugs and what kind of a health crisis that could lead to. What, what I'm basically coming at, and I know you, you, you know where I'm going with this, is we're going to have, if you think we're having a public health crisis now, and it, that's just a disease crisis right now. In 2050, we're going to have an epidemic of sorts. Um, so that's why we need to think about, when we think about personal health and tying that to sustainability, we have to think about the future of public health. And that's why I think all of this kind of melts together where you can't talk about good diet without talking about it being a sustainable one for the entire population on planet Earth. So any reactions on that? I know I ranted for a bit, but... <laughs> Uh, it's absolutely true, and I mean, I'm not a Debbie Downer because what neither of us are factoring in is technology radically changing the food industry towards factory-produced foods. And it may be that CAFOs don't exist, as Richard Branson has predicted by 2050, because Memphis Meat and other startups can literally pump out uh, you know, high quality foods that actually might be able to be engineered to optimize nutrition, like higher in omega-3 and vitamin D, some of the major, uh, potholes in the American diet and Western diet. And, you know, and we may be able to produce large amounts and everybody abundant amounts and, uh, you know, um, uh, starvation ends and destruction of environment. Ends. So I hope this conversation, how many years off is that, uh, 32 years, uh, hopefully even sooner than that, uh, is a conversation that seems almost, you know, dated because of progress. And I am optimistic that there will be solutions. They're going to be expensive at first, but if, uh, you know, it's not, it's not actually inexpensive to raise animals in a CAFO, but it's just subsidized to the point that it still squeaks out a profit for at least the big players in the business. It's not the small players trying to make it work. Uh, but until then, I agree. What? I mean, you know, we live in for today. We don't have long-term vision. That's common. We're all guilty of it. But 
you know, we should be concerned every moment, every meal, every conversation about, you know, using your fork in a positive way towards bettering the, the planet. And the data is, you know, it's not uh, mercy for animals putting this data out. They may repost it, and they're a wonderful organization, but you can say bias, bias, you know, they're a bunch of tree huggers. I mean, I think that's not appropriate and not correct, but nonetheless. But when you got Oxford University and Harvard and you've got United Nations just pleading with the public to uh, be more uh, aware of this whole issue, um, you're right. we got to say it over and over and over and over. Yeah, and you know, I'm glad you brought up technology and you know, clean cultured meat as well as what's happening now in the plant-based food industry. As you know, on this show we we focus a lot on the innovation that's happening over there. I've talked to many of those um entrepreneurs who've um started some of these companies uh and new ones that are working on innovative new products. What are your sort of thoughts there because you know, there's some it's very early stages of it and perhaps it's premature, but there's some criticism uh, being lobbied uh, towards uh, the plant-based food industry because, uh, and some of it from within the plant-based food movement itself is because if you focus on, you know, processed packaged foods, and I know not all processed foods are created equal, and you get people to shift away from meat and then choose to eat a veggie burger that's uh, made with uh, processed oils and uh, isolated proteins, you you end up in a, you know, we may end up in a place, and maybe again, this is too forward looking, but we may end up in a place 10, 20 years from now where people are eating predominantly plant-based, but are still having health problems because we haven't um, tackled some of those um, those clear no's in a diet that you shouldn't be filling your diet with, which is, you know, processed sugars, oils, um, and all of that stuff. So, you know, any, and I guess instead of being a Debbie Downer, let's try to see if there's any positive way. I know you have a restaurant that, and we'll talk about that in a bit, but what would you tell someone who's starting a company or running a company right now that is making the next big plant-based burger that's going to rock the nation and the world? How much responsibility do they have to make sure that their products are also nutritionally sound and uh, stand the test of time? Yeah, I think, you know, um, they have to be healthy, too. And uh, I don't blame them. I mean, if I were putting in millions of dollars into a plant-based food company and I look at what people have been trained to eat over the past 60 years, those words, and, you know, if you read the book, Salt, Sugar, fat by Michael mm-hmm. Moss and mouth, uh, uh, mouth feel and bliss point and you know people have been trained to get this explosion of dopamine in their brain from a Big Mac or a KFC bucket and you know if you make a quinoa black bean uh, low fat high fiber burger for sale in a grocery store which is what we do in my restaurants in Detroit. Um, they're amazing, and I know they're healthy, and I know they promote, you know, good outcomes and environmentally friendly outcomes, but they may not be the mouthfeel that people are used to. So I don't blame Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger for going, you know, for a calorie distribution that I would call not optimal with a whole lot of, you know, uh, uh, oils and, and, and fat calories that are naturally in plants that are being added in for uh or a good consistency. But I think the next phase has to be um, also uh, using technology to move it towards a healthier point. And it might even be an engineered point to add some of those, you know, uh, the omega-3 issue, which is an issue for all 
adults, but it, uh, the plant-based community has to focus because we don't make omega-3. We got to eat our flax or our chia or our hemp or our walnuts or take a algae-based omega-3. Well, there's no reason these things can't be uh, pumped up a bit to uh, also fill that need and really make it just seamless to eat nearly or completely plant-based. Uh, so, yeah, I, uh, I would say Josh Tetrick at Just Foods, you know, um, throw a little algae omega-3 in your mayonnaise or your, your new egg mix. And, and uh, you know, you don't want to make it, it doesn't have to be sold as a health food, but why not uh, uh, not kill two birds? I don't want to use that analogy, but, you know, fix, <laughs> uh, fix a few different or move, move the needle positively in a few different ways all at once. Yeah, and you know it's interesting that uh, Memphis Meats is uh, founded by uh, a cardiologist, and right. um, and I know that there's been, you know, I don't know where they are right now in terms of the product development cycle, um, but um, it it could be feasible that once they figure out how to produce uh, meat at scale at a price point that is um, equal to um, grass fed or perhaps even factory farm meat. That eventually they can, you could you could kind of uh, see that they would come out with healthier versions of those meats, uh, that perhaps uh, engineer the meat to be in a way that uh, addresses any potential for heart disease or diabetes and other problems. Um, and I know that's probably not the first product they'll come out with, and I know that's probably something Uma Valeri from Memphis Meats struggles with. But, uh, you know, you can't solve all the problems at once. Um, the first step would be, yeah, if you could come up with a product that is eliminating, uh, has the potential to eliminate factory farming in the next uh, 15, 20 years, then, yeah, you'll tackle that problem first. And then hopefully down the line, we can, uh, everyone's going to be eating meat maybe by 2030. That is uh, real meat just made, um, you know, that's that's clean and cultured, but uh, also tweak from a nutrition standpoint not to not to harm us absolutely absolutely so I, I am optimistic i think we're going through you know change is tough and mistakes are made but uh the food industry is responding maybe more from the idea that people are shunning meat but uh indirectly it's uh going to be helping the environment and i think that's you know a great win-win uh and if we can throw health in there and it's even a, you know a better win all around yeah so like where's your focus i want to shift gears a little bit and talk more about you know how are you using your knowledge expertise experience for the last several years um as a cardiologist as a author and now as a restaurant owner like where's your focus and what is your mission in the next you know few years at least at least in the next five years yeah, so, you know, I, was, I, I had an interesting cardiology career for the first 20 to 25 years, and it was, it included my own choice to follow a plant-based diet combined with my teaching of patients, because I was in the right field. The majority of the data was uh, in the uh, plant-based world. Um, you know, people like Dr. Dean Ornish and Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn and Mr. Um, Mr. Nathan Pritikin, but then about six, seven years ago, I decided to uh, adopt more of a, uh, a career that was visible and started um, writing books, of which I've written five, and went from scientific papers to writing more health blogs. So, you know, instead of 100 people writing an esoteric, reading an esoteric paper, you know, hopefully 10,000 or 150,000 as some of the blogs have been, I read it, and um, TV and radio. So, I mean... We have such a 
mission to educate. I mean, I'm only scratching the surface, but I do try regularly to, you know, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a blog, whether it's a TV, whether it's uh, using you know, any modality, Instagram, TV, now IGTV, I mean, anything. Uh, it's you know, and I I try and balance a little humor. Um, I stay away from being off color. I think I stay away from that. It's easy to fall into that. Um, but um, you know, in in trying to reach people and keep them engaged, that it's okay to be conscious about these issues. It can be fun to be conscious about these issues. It can be uh, rewarding to your health or your sense of contributing to the world. So. I, you know, I try and avoid being too preachy. I do honor, you know, whether it's Mercy for Animals or PETA or Pam Anderson or people that are, you know, maybe a little bit more aggressive about their stance. Uh, I think you need different people to respond to different things. I mm-hmm. try and use my medical degree responsibly to say, you know, I'd like to uh, help you parse through this and find where you're most comfortable with, but you got to know the data. And, you know, patient in the office. I had two people in the last two days in my clinic in Detroit. One had had a recent heart attack. It was absolutely certain that the low-carb, high-animal food, high-animal-fat keto diet was the right uh, post-heart attack diet because his uh, primary care doc and other people told him. Fortunately, I caught him only two months into it because the only paper on the topic about ketogenic diet after heart attack shows a tremendous rise in mortality rate if you pursue that long-term. Now, a lot of these studies are flawed, and you can say imperfect study, but if you want an imperfect study that says I'm eating a diet that may kill me or, uh, you know, you're going to wait till there's a perfect study and take the risk in the meantime. So, And then yesterday I saw a gentleman, can't say too much, got to always protect him, but had spent easily $100,000 in the last year trying to figure out his health um, with various health experts. I made total, total bargain compared to what he spent. And, you know, we had to talk about diet. He came to me. He knows my stance from the web. And, you know, he's doing keto and he's got heart disease. And, um, you know, so, again, if you're a heart patient, there's all the rest of the world and there's serious heart patients. Serious heart patients need to read, uh, you know, Reversing Heart Disease, Dr. Ornish's program, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease by Dr. Esselstyn, a recent review in May 2018 by Dr. Neil Bernard on nutrition and heart disease. I mean, these people are do not have skin in the game. They have you know, serious concern to try and use the science responsibly. Uh, you're not going to find any cans of Dr. Esselstyn's soup on the grocery store list, but, uh, you know, <laughs> he cares. So, um, you know, that's the one line in the sand that I don't flex on. I mean, you know, you can love the environment 90% of the time and eat some grass-fed beef 10% of the time, and I'll hug on you and love on you and talk to you. But you're a serious heart patient. You know, you've got the science wonk if you think you can add butter on your steak and um, have abs like some of the six-pack carnivores and believe that's going to further you down the road because uh, it just it's just uh, confused and dangerous science. And, you know, to see two people in a row get it so wrong, I'm just always talking, spreading, talking, spreading. Yeah. And, you know, you have to understand the goals. I mean, people get sucked into some of these uh, new fad diets, I think, more because they're just looking for a quick fix. And sometimes it gives you that quick fix in terms of weight loss. Yeah, um, it does. And I, you know, the reason I'm open to learning and listening to every side of the story is because I've talked about this, too, is that uh, two years ago, I found myself I'd been uh, plant based for about six years and I wasn't in the best health. Um, and it, it was 
partly because of my diet, but uh, because I was eating out too much. I was very, I was working 18 hours a day, not sleeping well, uh, stressed with uh, managing my business and, and keeping it going. Uh, and I kind of neglected my diet and wasn't working out much. And I found myself uh, at a point where I had high cholesterol and I had become the the the, the horrible vegan who was not uh, was not healthy. And so I, you know, I started, I went on a little journey trying to see where I could find the answers. And the answers came from everywhere. And I, you know, I tried all kinds of things sticking within the plant-based space, of course. Um, I wasn't interested in, in, in starting to eat meat. But, you know, I tried, you can do ketosis on a plant-based diet. You can, uh, you can try fasting. You can try all kinds of things. And the the funny part is eventually I fell back, especially after doing all my research and reading many books and, and research papers, I fell back on the simple idea that if I could just eat mostly whole food plant-based, um, I would be at least getting the diet component right. And of course, then I took steps to address the other components. And, and you know, voila, it just fixed everything. It dropped uh, 40 pounds of uh, cholesterol back to normal. My doctor was like, what the hell have you been doing? Uh, in the last two years. And, you know, of course, I can't just say diet was the only thing that made it happen. And I'm very, and that's why I like that you, you tend to have an approach broader than that. And maybe we can talk about that. But once you fix the diet, that's actually not the toughest part. Um, you then have to sleep and do all those other things. So maybe we can, you know, why don't you, in your mind, if you had to tell someone, uh, you know, if you manage to get the diet part right and eat uh, all entirely whole food plant-based or mostly whole food plant-based, um, what are the other things that people need to keep in mind to truly be healthy? Uh, and I've, you know, I've, I've given one hint about sleeping, one key one out there. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, right, neck and neck with the quality of the food you put on your plate is the quality of attention you put to your sleep. And some people would say, well, there's a whole lot of other things, but people that do put quality into their sleep usually make better food choices, usually skip the gym less, Usually, if they choose to quit smoking, stay off smoking more, um, you know, usually are kinder, happier people. It's tough, tough. You know, the shortest you can go without water for a few days, you can go without food for weeks. Um, you you know, you can go for months without exercise, as most America does. But, you, you know, a couple of days of no sleep, your depression goes up, your risk of suicide goes up, your, um, you know, cognitive uh, executive function goes down dramatically. So uh, you need it, and it may take... You know, all the hygiene, it may take CBD oil and magnesium, it may take transcendental meditation classes, as I just completed this week after many years of other kinds of uh, meditation. I wanted to get that skill uh, well entrenched uh, in my uh, toolbox for myself and patients. Um, uh, I may include cutting caffeine out or caffeine off at noon, and uh, that's because some people are very sensitive, whatever. Sleep would be there. You need to move your body. I have standing desks everywhere I'm at. So maybe 20 minutes an hour, I'm off my feet, 25 minutes. Uh, if I have a half an hour phone call with a patient, I'm always, always standing. I actually, even more important, I have a standing pad that I bought on Amazon. So it allows me to, like, wiggle around when I'm standing. It just has bumps all over it. It's actually a, a fun little thing. I mean, if you have a little music on the background, it's almost hard not to groove a little. I mean, I'm from Motown, so... We moved naturally in Detroit and Motown. Um, um, and then stress management. You know, stress, whether you whether that is a formal meditation, and I would give a shout-out to that in today's crazy world, 
whether that is, uh, you know, exercise, whether that is sleep, whether that is, uh, you know, friendship, socialization, uh, whether that is adaptogens like ashwagandha, whatever it takes to manage your stress, yoga. Um, you know, you need a strategy uh, of either mind or breathing or uh, all of the above. And then, um, uh, you know, intelligent supplementation helps. Plant-based people, don't don't be dumb. Take your B12, take your D3, take maybe some algae omega-3. Uh, don't negotiate it. Um, there's a few others. I'm, you know, I'm pretty bullish on CoQ10 and some others, but uh, I try and stick to a short list and not, uh, you know, 20 supplements a day for people. They won't do it, but three or four they should do. Uh, to improve the quality. Magnesium would be one of those. Uh, mm. Magnesium's amazing. You take a, a little magnesium powder before bed, a couple of magnesium capsules, you sleep better, you poop better, your blood <laughs> pressure's better, your skip beats go away, uh, your migraines get better, your PMS gets better. Um, it's really quite a remarkable uh, response you get from patients, and it makes total physiologic sense. Our food is depleted of magnesium. It used to be rich. Uh, farming practices, going back to farming, always farming. You know, you think about it, you know, and there's some amazing data. You can take a red, medium red apple. Actually, the data was from the 1990s. It's worse now. And you take a medium red apple from 1920, there's 85% less magnesium in a medium red apple in the 1990s because of soil deterioration. So it looks the same. It says crunchy, but uh, you're not getting one of the more important mineral, minerals you need to maintain your blood pressure and cardiovascular health. Um, and then the last thing would be just uh, environmental uh exposure to toxins, mm-hmm. which is food, but, you know, our, our plastic bottles, our water, things we put on our skin, things we brush our teeth with, mouthwash. I mean, go to ewg.org, read One Green Planet, and, uh, you know, upgrade, upgrade, recognizing the, you know, the real metabolic poisons that some of these things are, these endocrine-disrupting chemicals and persistent organic pollutants, which are naturally lower in most plants than they are in the fat tissue of animals, particularly fish. Fish are called bioaccumulators. They just love to accumulate PCBs, DDT, dioxin. And it's a shame. I mean, we should be able to eat fish without concern if you find fish a reasonable choice. But uh, not only has it depleted the oceans, but this bioaccumulation of organic pollutants and fish flesh. I measure mercury, lead, arsenic levels in every patient I see. And God, the number of people with mercury in their blood at high level, or like a really high level, and the only source is either their silver fillings are falling apart, which <laughs> many of these people don't don't have, or it's their fish intake. So, got to work on them because mercury is just a, just a poison. And, uh, it's everywhere, but it seems to be particularly concentrated in the large fish. But sometimes people are eating salmon every day, which is not considered a large fish, and yeah. mercury levels are sky high. Now, that's amazing sound advice. I'm so glad you ran through all of that. I mean, I think sometimes we don't talk enough about, um, you know, if you had to draw a diagram about good health, maybe food's at the center of it, but it's incomplete without all of what you just outlined in the last uh, couple of minutes because uh, at the end of the day, you can you can be eating healthy, but if you, yeah, you don't, you compromise on sleep or you um, are are kind of not moving and are um, isolating yourself from people, you're probably going to end up unhealthy and unhappy. Uh, And of course, you know, that's a complete different topic, but we've got to think about how in this, um, 
overstimulated society where we are kind of so connected on social media and um, inundated with information and messages and all kinds of things, we just have to learn how to disconnect and kind of um, find uh, a little peace. And I think, it, yeah, I don't mean to sound you know, very spiritual in that sense. But I think if everyone tried a meditation practice or at least found some way to have uh, incorporate breathing in their life, they would, uh, we would all be able to be more patient to with other people who disagree with us. And hopefully we can all find some way to focus on the solution much like you do versus um, spending time arguing with each other, which I think can be counterproductive in the long run. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I do want to say one more thing before, you know, before we wrap up over here, I do want to talk about your restaurant because, you know, I think that's, it's, you know, that's amazing. You don't hear about uh, this often that a cardiologist has opened a restaurant. So, you know, I can probably dedicate an entire episode just to that and perhaps we'll, we'll do that some other time. But at a high level going into it, what was your goal to open a restaurant uh, and I'm sure with opening a restaurant, any sort of food businesses, any food business, you have to, you know, make some trade-offs, right? Because you're using resources, you're, you have to deliver food, you have to create food that is going to taste amazing. But of course, you, you are a health expert, you don't want to compromise on nutrition and, and good health. How did you wrestle yeah, with those so, decisions? And what's your restaurant all about? Yeah, we did wrestle with them. We've been open almost three years with our flagship restaurant called Green Space Cafe in Ferndale, Michigan. Now we have a second kind of a grab-and-go, sit-down, faster restaurant called Green Space and & Go. And we have a food truck also in Austin, Texas, called Green Space ATX Food. Um, so we, we actually didn't compromise too much. We're completely plant-based. We did talk at the beginning about vegetarian versus vegan. But both the way we ate, the food industry allowing us to really do anything we wanted to without using any animal products. You know, the uh, scrambled egg has been the hardest thing, but uh, uh, you can do without that in almost every form of cooking. Um, we decided no fryers. Generally, fried food is not a healthy way to present uh, a potato as a great <laughs> food. A fried potato becomes a different beast in terms of every aspect. Um, so we don't fry and we're, we're one restaurant's totally organic, one restaurant's almost totally organic. It's just on the large scale of the bigger restaurant. You can't always count on every uh, provider to be there every day, so it's largely. Um, and, you know, there's a price to pay for that in terms of public acceptance. There's a price to pay in terms of quality and expense of food sourcing. Um, so we went upscale. I mean, uh, you can't compete with McDonald's and Red Robin right now if you're doing plant-based, largely organic fresh. I mean, it's just not possible. Fried food is cheap and easy and scoop and serve is cheap and easy. But we are successful. We serve, you know, up to a couple thousand people a week in various restaurants and uh, and many, many, oh, you know, repeat customers, some people back every day. And one restaurant has a bar, the main flagship. Um, That's a compromise. You know, still, if you look, I'm a cardiologist, the overall data, and I don't want to go too deep on this topic, uh, in terms of cardiac health and alcohol, uh, wine and other spirits is very supportive and very scientifically supportive. Lately, when you look at the bigger picture of overall health and longevity, uh, you know, moderating and minimizing your alcohol intake is probably prudent. Um, you know, but we do serve alcohol. Uh, it's all vegan. It's all organic and high quality, but it is there, often mixed with CBD oil or green juice or ginger or turmeric, uh, real interesting mythology. Um, 
I, you know, but that's a compromise. Uh, I'm not anti-alcohol, but uh, without the revenue from alcohol, many restaurants could barely stay alive. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, the, anybody who thinks it sounds exciting, the first thing I was told, and I'm thinking about doing this with my wife and my son, was, you know, if you want to make a small fortune in the restaurant business, start with a large fortune. And uh, it's hard work, you know. Yeah. It's hard work to uh, manage and train and provide consistent food quality to, you know, a uh, 130-seat restaurant and a 25-seat restaurant and a food truck. I mean, it's a lot of work. It's it's passion. It's, uh, you know, when you make the right thing to do, the easy thing to do, you can start to change people's habits. So, um, you know, giving people a, a place to come where, whether it's a food allergy or a food preference, because we're very careful about food allergies. We aren't exclusively gluten-free, but we win every year the best gluten-free restaurant in Detroit area because we cater so extensively to people's particular dietary needs. So, yeah, it's been a tremendously exciting three years, but, you know, we're in it for the long run, and uh, we're not in it for any short cash-out. I don't think that exists in most restaurants. Yeah, that's very exciting. I mean, I haven't tried your food yet, but I can't wait to, and I and hope it starts to spread across the country, or I find myself in one of those cities that uh, has a green space. But, um, you know, I'm excited to see what how that evolves as well, because it's a great platform for you to, you know, besides talking and writing books, you now can showcase the food in a way that is um, intellectually honest and also tastes great. So uh, that's just a, a perfect... Uh, I think a perfect recipe, pun intended, to uh, solve the problems that we're facing. So right. I want to kind of close right. out with a with a very big question, um, Joel. I want to talk about um, you know you've been very optimistic today, and I think I I love that because I think focusing on the problems is fine, but if you don't start spending our time on solutions, we will never actually solve anything. So. Um, I want to know your vision of, I know we spoke about the year 2050, that's around 30, 32 years from now. Uh, If we get it right, if you get it right, if you're able to convince people that eating mostly plants is the right thing to do, if we're able to change our food system where it is um, not cheaper to buy a McDonald's burger, um, instead it is cheaper to buy healthy food or at least the same price, um, and of course, we have government policies that all align and, and make the right things happen. What if we all succeed and we make this change happen? What is your vision for a, a, a better food system in the year 2050? No, I think it's, you know, it, it has to happen because we have such a, uh, you know, the last, I think it's three years now, lifespan in the United States has actually dropped, first time ever since it's been recorded. I mean, overall lifespan, and there's many factors in that, but certainly. Um, the excess of processed uh, calories, uh, sugar, fat, uh, chemical-laden calories uh, is part of it. Um, so we, you know, we pretty much have hit bottom. Uh, but I am optimistic that we will be seeing, if we can accomplish that by 2050, we will be seeing a dramatic reduction in childhood obesity, childhood diabetes, you know, and adulthood obesity, diabetes, cancer. I mean, I think we have what we need. Sure, there's questions about. Is it 80%, 90%, 100% organic, conventional, um, and all? But if, if, you know, again, if hospitals, schools, you know, workplaces were the platform, and they should be, it's a complete and utter embarrassment uh, that, you know, the medical system and the hospitals are the way they are. Uh, they should be the first, not the last. Right now, it looks like they're about to be the last. 
uh, to get on board with us. But at any rate, we should see a tremendous improvement in the health of the Western world. Um, and, you know, rather than export our worst, our disease to, you know, Okinawa, Japan, which you say have the longest longevity till Colonel Harlan Sanders and his team and every other team is now on board. Uh, but we should see that um, we can start exporting health and wellness uh, at really a root cause level, which is nutrition, wholesome nutrition. We just got to relearn what we used to do. We got to know a few recipes. We got to, you know, know how to garden. Uh, or we got to have industry provide us a true substitute that's cost and time efficient so we don't have to garden and don't have to uh, learn how to cook because nobody does anymore. If we can get a robot to do it for us, great. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I think I think that's really a possibility, and thanks to the work that you're doing uh, with uh, your books, your talks, your conversations, as well as the food in your restaurant. Uh, you are bringing about that change. So thank you so much for being on today, and I can't wait to have you back on in the in the next few months and to talk about a lot more because I think we share a lot in common and and especially for sure. focusing on the right solutions where which we all need to do and spreading that message to people who don't hear it. I think we need the One Green Planet Summit in New York City and bring all disparate voices together and force us to sit and be next to each other for <laughs> half a day. I'll add that to my long list of to-dos, but thank okay, you. It's a great suggestion. Yeah. All right, thank you, Dr. All right, thank you so much. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nils Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.